This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am delighted to be joined by my friend Bill Simon. Bill has had a remarkable career in law, business, philanthropy, and authorship. He has been, to me, the epitome of what it means to be a thoughtful business person to live the examined life in the marketplace. He has been an assistant United States attorney, a merchant banker, a gubernatorial candidate in California, the leader of the most important prize in philanthropy, and an author, and an entrepreneur. And he is here with us today at The Rabbi's Husband to discuss Ecclesiastes chapter three and Exodus 14, 14, and a theme that he discovered through the conjunction of both of these passages. And this theme is one that, as we'll see, is guiding him today and just so characteristic of Bill's thoughtfulness and intelligence. When I asked him for, for one passage, he said, there's a theme that really these two very different passages, I don't think anyone's ever brought them together before, really is, is helping uh, me in my life. And so uh, Bill's here uh, with us today to discuss uh, Ecclesiastes and Exodus. So Bill, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much for inviting me here. And uh you know, this actually is an opportunity for me for a little spiritual growth, which in my case is always a good thing. And so thank you for having me. And I, with the help of my spiritual director, I focused on these passages that you mentioned, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 14, verses 14 and 15. Beautiful. So um, let's before we get into the passage, let's just talk about the notion of a spiritual director. So, uh, Bill, of course, you come from deeply uh, inside the Catholic tradition, and your spiritual director also comes from the same faith, of course. Yes, exactly. His name is Wilkie Al, and he's an author in addition to being a spiritual director and uh, my pastor at St. Monica's Church in Santa Monica, California, whose name is Lloyd Torgerson, recommended Wilkie to me about 10 years ago now. And we generally talk or, you know, meet in person about every other week on average. Well, it, it, it's such an important discipline. And, and thank you for sharing with everybody just the, the idea of having a spiritual director, somebody who can guide one spiritually through the complexities of, of life with, with the direction provided by faith. And so I'm glad that, that you and he came with such an interesting conjunction of passages. So, uh, Bill, why don't you tell us about Ecclesiastes 3? It's, it's a passage that's going to be familiar to a lot of people as well as Exodus 14, 14, and what you see in the unity of the two. So let's chat a little bit about Ecclesiastes chapter three first. And, uh, you know, I think at some point I may intersperse a little bit in terms of what has happened in my life recently. Right. Because what's happened in my life recently bears upon why I chose, you know, these three verses. So Ecclesiastes three, in essence, is a discussion of life from the standpoint of timing. Now, you and I, Mark, in the business world, you know, we always say timing is, is very important. And uh, I think God is saying the same thing in Ecclesiastes 3. He's not talking about the stock market, really, or, you know, asset appreciation and depreciation. But he's really talking about, you know, there's a season for various feelings, emotions, actions, 
And, uh, you know, if I can talk a little bit for a minute about where I am in my life. But, but before we get to that, so so this is the, the Ecclesiastes passage that everyone's familiar with. There's, there's a, a time for a whole variety of things. Yeah, totally. So if you look at the passage, you know, it says a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal. And it goes down for about 22 different comparisons, a time for this, a time for that. And, and basically, the idea is that, you know, there's no, if you will, one right action for all time. It's, it's a situation where sometimes it's the right action. Sometimes, frankly, it's not the right action. So, you know, the passage says, for example, there's a time for scattering stones. There's a time for collecting stones. Right. There's a time to find. There's a time to lose. There's a time for keeping. There's a time for throwing away. And I found that it said there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to speak up. And I found that very profound. You know, as I mentioned, I've been speaking with my spiritual director and he's been helping me for about 10 years now to kind of navigate various situations in in my life. And this passage that he suggested I focus on, Ecclesiastes 3, is a good summary of some of the minefields that I attempt to navigate. Sometimes with some success, really God's success. And sometimes, you know, my own failings led me to do things that, you know, private timing wasn't right. So a lot of people's failings, you think, can be attributed to doing something that's not in its season. Oh, yes. I mean, I I know I'm 69 years old right now, Mark. And uh, I know that earlier in my career, professionally and personally, sometimes I push too hard. It wasn't the right time. And that brings into, if you will, the discussion, these second two verses in Exodus, which really relate to pausing, being still. Don't stop moving. That's Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, with the combination of the two. So, so this is right after the Exodus. Or in fact, during the Exodus, the Jews are leaving Egypt on that fateful night, and they don't know that the sea's about to be parted, but it's going to be parted, and they're going to make it through. And Moses stops to pray, it seems. And God tells him effectively, thus 14.14, Moses stops and he's still. And then 14.15, God tells, tells him essentially, this is not the time for praying. Go. Yes, exactly. So it, it was an interesting juxtaposition in these two verses. So in, in verse 14, God says, be still and know I am God. Have trust, have faith. As you pointed out, Mark, in the very next verse, verse 15, God says, yes, be still, but keep moving. And the interesting thing is that the words for still were different words in verse 14 than verse 15. In verse 14, it's more pause and trust. In verse 15, it's more yes, pause, but keep moving as God shows you the way. Right. Now, it's very interesting. In the, in the kind of Jewish imagination of these verses, it's in 14, it's kind of what we would consider erroneous theology in that Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And then God in 15 says, guys, that's not the way it works. This <laughs> world's all about a partnership. It's about a partnership. You know, it's not about you being still and I'm going to make everything right for you. I'm going to create the conditions so you can do my will but then you have to be my partner. And, and that's what he says. Uh, 
it's so interesting in a religious text where God is basically saying, he says, uh, stop praying. Like it's time to time to act. And, but but as you said, there's a time for stillness and a time for action. There's a time for contemplation. There's, there's a time for acting in accordance with what one has contemplated. Yeah, I mean, I found in my own spiritual life, Mark, thanks to, in great part, my spiritual director, that once you feel that you know the direction from God, then it's time to move. And there's there's no more necessity for, you know, thinking, pondering, and praying. Right. You know, my dad used to call it analysis paralysis at some point. Which is a great business concept. You got to move forward. And... You know, there's a time to let God show you what is the right way. And then there's another time subsequently, which is keep moving, go forth, do God's will. And that's why I found Ecclesiastes 3 to be, you know, so informative when you compare it with Exodus 14 and 15, because if you will, Ecclesiastes gives you content. 14 and 15 in Exodus say, Here's the overall concept. Be still, pray, get direction, whether it's, you know, one of the items in Ecclesiastes, and then move in 15. So it's almost like a three-step process. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's magnificent. Now, have you felt in, in your life that there have been times when God has come to you and given you direction, and then you have acted accordingly? There, there have been lots of examples of each, in other words, examples where I followed what I thought was God's direction, and then other examples where I didn't really seek God's direction when I was younger. You know, I, I would kind of look at it myself, wouldn't pray a lot about it. I would say, this looks good on the surface, let's go for it. And so, yes, I mean, you know, my life has been a series of kind of starts and stops and ups and downs and victories and defeats. And, uh, you know, as, as I now, now that I have retired from my investment business, I look back, I realized that when I really paused, when I really followed Exodus 14, verse 14, be still, right? that things worked out how they were going to work out, meaning I could sense it was God's will. So right now I teach at UCLA. I love it. I, that was totally God. I was totally providential. And, and Bill, not only are you a teacher, but you who have no formal academic background, you went to Williams and were a lawyer, were rated the number one professor at UCLA. I know. You believe me, no, was, no one was more shocked than me. In fact, when I said to my wife, this has happened, she said, boy, the rest of those teachers must not be very good. You know how a wife can be honest with you. <laughs> but you, but and then you, you keep winning similar awards from UCLA year after year, betraying a gift that you must have for. And this is in economics, right? Yeah, economics. And so you and I both went to Williams. I took one economics course, Williams. Right. You don't have you don't have a PhD in economics. No, I have a liberal arts degree in history. Basically, that was my major. Right. And so there's been some times in my life when I sure wanted to do something, like I wanted to be governor of California, and it didn't happen. And when I go up top for the exit interview, I, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask. I thought, God, this was your will. Obviously, it wasn't. Teaching was something that I stumbled into. And as a result of a lot of dialogue with my spiritual director, I, I realized this was God's will, you know, that he's providing me a path. 
because without a PhD, as you know, Mark, you're not going to be hired to teach. You know, I don't have tenure at UCLA. I'm subject to an annual evaluation by my students, and I'm only as good as my last evaluation. Maybe these prizes will help give me an extra two or three years if the evaluations are low. But, you know, so that for me was an example of God's will. And I fought it a little bit. And and why did I do that? Well, you know, I have an ego. And, you know, the ego says, you know, you could be ambassador to this or that, or you could be in a position of great public responsibility. Now, you know, as a teacher, you know, I labor in the vineyards with these wonderful students I get to teach, but it doesn't feed my external ego. What it feeds in me is just a great sense of satisfaction. And that, I think, is a grace from God. So when you look at Ecclesiastes, basically, and say, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. Well, I was 57 years old when I started teaching, and and maybe that's the time to give back. Maybe that's the time that I had my public career, as you referenced, and now it's time to do other things. And God's grace has given me the confidence and the feeling of, of fulfillment to say, you know, this is this is terrific. So in, in Deuteronomy, there's this passage that has this kind of beautiful intentional ambiguity where it says that according to Hashem, according to God, here are the writings of Moses's journey. So then the question is, well, what was according to God? Was it the writings or the journey leading us to ask, do we feel God's presence or do we know what God wanted in the writing when it's all over or during the journey? And that's the ambiguity. It's like it's saying, God's saying, I'm not going to give you the answer. It's one of the two. Either you'll know it at the end in the writing or you'll know it in the journey. Now, with your teaching, was it, now you're still doing it, so it wasn't entirely a writing thing, but was it more of a writing thing where after having done done it for certain years, you said, this is what God wants me to do? Or was it when you got the opportunity to teach without any formal background or traditional qualification, you said, this must be what God wants me to do? Was there a moment when it struck you? You know, I would say there was an early moment. It wasn't when I started. You know, when I ran for governor and I got close, won the primary, got close in the general, people would obviously come up and say, what do you want to do now? You're going to run for this. You're going to run for that. And one time, kiddingly, I said to the person who was asking me, you know, what I'd like to do is get dressed up like Julius Caesar, go into a freshman history class at college, all dressed up, take my helmet off, slam it on the desk, say, Benny, Vidi, Vicky, I came, I saw, I conquered. If everybody starts laughing, all those freshmen, maybe I'm in the right place. Well, that person I said that to started laughing. He said, you know, I'm teaching. And would you be interested in co-teaching a course with me? And that's how it all started. So it was really, it was serendipity. But then after about, I would say, a year, I began to notice, and maybe this might be my, my Catholic tradition, and I'll explain that in a minute. I began to notice that when I was driving home after class, I just had a feeling of peace. I, I don't mean some overarching, you know, kind of nirvana. What I really mean is I felt good. I enjoyed it. And I felt satisfaction. And I began to think, wow, you know, I don't feel that in a lot of other areas of my professional life. And so that was the first inkling work that maybe this was something that God wanted me to do. And what my spiritual director said, so he was, an, he was a Jesuit priest for 32 years, and now he's a layperson. And he said in his Jesuit theology, Ignatian theology, you look for the presence of God. And often it's a, what they call a still, small voice. 
Elijah. And and you look, that's still small voice. So I'm driving home, right? I'm not listening to the radio, which I usually do. I'm just thinking, wow, I'm teaching. I mean, I wasn't trained for this. I I had no expectations, to be honest. You know, if I had whatever I ended up doing during my career, I always had an expectation of I hoped a favorable outcome, right? I had none of that. All I had was this very profound, soft, you know, feeling of satisfaction. Fascinating. Well, in in the in the Jewish tradition, the word for the Hebrew word for angel and messenger is exactly the same because it's one concept. Yes. An angel in the Jewish tradition is not someone in heaven dressed in a particular way. It's angels are on earth. They're all among us. They're people who come with a message from God. Then they go back to being regular people. And it seems to me like this guy that you said, I would like to come like Julius Caesar. It sounds like a classic Jewish angel, right? He's a person, but he's deputized by God in that moment to be an angel, to deliver you a message, which is, all right, you're going to the classroom. And here you are. How many years later? It's Yeah, it's probably 17 years. Wow, 17 years later. Yeah, he was an angel, I think. You know, and I think you're right, Mark. I mean, and, you know, he wasn't an obvious angel. No, but angels never are. No, but that's that's one of the reasons why we got to treat everybody like they could be an angel, because an angel has a message. Now, in order to get the message, we have to open ourselves up to him. But you did, and he had the message. You took it. And 17 years is a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, God gives me a few more years to do it because you know i just feel like it's it's the right fit now and certainly god's will I, you know i don't know if it would have been at age 20 or 30 I, I just don't know but those are questions that i don't really need to know the answer to it's almost like one of the other you know meanings that i got out of exodus you know chapter 14 verse 14 was be still meaning right don't ask all these questions that frankly don't relate to what my will is. You know, and and one of the questions was, you know, why did it work this way? You know, the whys and the wherefores and that kind of thing. And I think I've I've learned, you know, through God's grace to accept and be grateful. And, you know, to just say, hey, what a great gift that I received. And it's my, it's my job, if you will, to keep teaching. You know, there. I've had a few other signs along the way, right? That you know confirmed that it was like God was saying, just in case you were wondering, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Well, it's interesting that you know because you brought up should you have been teaching at age 20 or 25, and I imagine that part of what makes you a great teacher. I mean, the number one professor at UCLA with similar awards every year is that you come with years of business experience. I think so. I mean, you're teaching economics, right? You, you must come with business experience. That must have been. No, no. Be- I, I think you're right. And I think, look, there's 38 other professors in the econ department, all with PhDs. So they're teaching all the formal equations and, the, you know, the formal econ, you know, lexicon. And I'm not, you know, basically, I didn't get any lessons on how to teach or any lessons upon, you know, which... I'd have to fit in with the rest of the curriculum. So I I was kind of flying blind, but not really, right? I was flying with God's grace. Right. And one of the ideas that came to me, probably from God, is that the first day of class, I get up to these, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, and I say, I'm going to spend a fair bit of this course talking about my mistakes. And there's a lot of them. And one of the reasons is I want you to know 
that you're going to do great. Now, you got to work hard. There's no substitute for hard work. However, if you work hard, you're going to have a great career. You know, you may not know today exactly what the high points and the low points are going to be, but you're going to do great. Don't worry. And if I tell you some of the stupider things I've done, maybe that'll make you feel a little more comfortable that if that if he did that and he did okay, and they and, and they tell me in my reviews, you know, so they give you evaluations, student commentary, and they say they like that. So another thing they say that surprised me. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily a positive in the business world is that I'm very kind. And, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you know, the question for people in those age brackets is sometimes, are they tough enough? Are they mean enough? Are they, you know, willing to be ruthless, you know, whatever. And, and I never was. And sometimes people would say to me, you know, you're too nice a guy to run for governor. You're too nice a guy. And I usually took that, I wouldn't say as an insult, I would, I would say, you know, geez, that's not a positive. But in the teaching context, being kind, which you give off with your body language, you know, you can't hide your body language. So the kids get a sense for, is he kind? Is he patient? Is he tolerant? Or does he not really like what he's doing? Does he not have time for you? All those kinds of things. I found out that that comes out whether you want it to or not. So what was potentially a negative in my 20s and 30s, right? He's too nice a guy. Now is, I feel he's approachable. I feel like I can raise these things with Professor Simon. And so that's another reason I think it's, you know, God's will, because God created me the way I am. Well, and, you know, um, Rabbi Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus in the first century, and perhaps the great leader, the great Jewish leader of his time, he forbids strict people from teaching. Yeah. Because he said, if you're a strict person, he said, you can't communicate your love of the students and your love of the subject, and you will not be a good teacher. So if you're strict, you can't teach. You know, Mark, I'm so glad to know that, you know, because occasionally I'll get these reinforcements, if you will, or confirmations from different places. One of my students last semester, he's from China, from Beijing, and he gave me a scroll that was all about one of the most famous teachers in, in Chinese history. Never heard of the teacher, but I, I read the translation of the scroll that he provided me. You know, there was references to patience, kindness, the equivalent of not being strict, you know, letting, letting students develop. I was like, wow. You know, that's when I began to say, maybe I should have been t- a teacher all those years ago. But then I said, you know, wait a minute, be still, be still. Well, all those years, you were probably actually preparing to be a teacher. I think you're right. I think that's the way I look at it, you know, in in hindsight. You know, I'm very grateful that at at my age that there is something worthwhile that I can do. I, you know, I know, you know, I wouldn't say a lot. I would say I know a not insubstantial number of people at my age that are still trying to hang on, you know, to their 30s and whatever their job was in their 30s and 40s. They're not happy. You know, they're not happy because basically the world's gone by them. You know, it's a different world today than it was in 1973 when I graduated from college. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have happened to remind me that it's a much different place and time. Absolutely. So, Bill, thank you for such a fascinating conversation. And for the last question, let's just move from one text, which is the Bible, to a very different text, which is um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story. He said, I, I just ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. 
And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confession, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a profound, profound lessons derived from, from hearing confessions for uh, probably by that point, 15 or 20 years. So, Bill, in your years of, of teaching and in the commercial world, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, you know, that when you gave me that quote, I'm going to look that up because that's a great quote. It's page one of the book, yeah. So I, I meet with my pastor every Sunday at 545 in the morning just to talk about things. We're friends in addition to, you know, he's my, my pastor. And he once said to me a couple of years back now, Bill, I've been hearing confessions. So that's why it's kind of for 50, for 50 years. And he said, you know something? What I've learned? One thing. We are all the same. I was like, wow. And so that's consistent with what you read, Mark. And, you know, I tell that to my kids, to my students. I say, you know, we're all the same. You know, I made a ton of mistakes. You will make mistakes. And so if I start from that idea, we're all the same. You know, that leads me to other conclusions if I pause. And a lot of times I don't pause. I'm nowhere near where I should be, but I hope I'm getting there. So I'd say, what have I learned in the commercial and, you know, sector and the, and the teaching sector is, you know, the same patterns of behavior. We are all the same right. uh, from much different backgrounds, a lot of differences, but at the core, we're all the same. And uh, I feel like I now have a chance in teaching to pause. Because I don't feel I don't feel as insecure as I did maybe in, when I was running for office or in the commercial sector where I felt if I didn't reach a certain outcome, you know, I'd be judged a failure. And now all of a sudden that I've shed that coat. And in the teaching context, I feel like I can pause and maybe impart that idea, you know, that we're all the same. And so that to me would be a, a learning for me in my life. Well, Bill, beautiful. So. Uh... Thank you so much for uh, sharing your your wisdom, your insights, and yourself with us on The Rabbi's Husband. And uh, God willing, uh, circumstances will be such that we can get together again soon. I would very much look forward to that, Mark. I very much admire you. Oh, I admire you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. You are the God of the